I'll read a ver- the next verse that we're going to cover, and then we'll pray and begin the lecture and the discussion. Hebrews twelve sixteen and 17. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So here we have a further warning against apostasy, and Esau serves as the illustration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us think carefully and seriously about these things, to look to you for grace that we might not fall into these sins, that we might live in a way that would bring honor and glory to you. And we commit this next hour of teaching to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's another warning. Hebrews has quite a few of them. And it's interesting how the Esau narrative is described by the author of Hebrews. It says that there be no immoral or godless person. Immoral is porneia, godless is baby loss. And some scholars take the term baby loss and translate it secular. Secular. And it would mean somebody who's not listening to what God said. And so they're effectively secular. And then the proof that he was immoral and secular was that he sold his birthright for a single meal. And then later when the blessings were actually distributed, he didn't like his situation, so he uh, wanted a reversal, but he couldn't find one. It was too late. All right. Now, on the scene of history, we can read about what happened. So if you want to turn with me to Genesis twenty-five twenty-nine, then I'm going to make some applications to the new covenant as the author of Hebrews is doing, making application of the Esau narrative. Genesis 25, 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom means red. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentils too. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Now notice what it says. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay? Now, we need to put this in the right context and understand it. It's very important. The birthright for Jacob and Esau was more than just your normal packing order on the day your dad dies. Who gets what? But it also involved the promises of the covenant. Okay, in other words, God had promised covenant blessings to Abraham and his children. And so far, that meant Abraham and Isaac. Now, according to the normal order of things, it would be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Now, have anybody heard the New Testament refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Esau? No, we don't hear that, do we? What do we hear? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we know from Romans 9, if you look behind the scene, that God's purpose was being fulfilled in this. But that's not our point here in Hebrews. This is a warning against us 
committing the same sin that Esau did. Now, I'll shortly give some application to that. So he's called immoral or godless. Godless is baby loss, which means secular. What does that mean? It means he was only thinking of the moment and his personal gratification now temporarily. He wasn't thinking one bit about the covenant promises of God to Abraham and to Isaac. He was only thinking about at the moment, I am so hungry, I can eat, I have to eat, I have to eat right now, and I don't care how much it costs. How many of you know that's kind of a bad state to get in because you're likely to make a bad decision, won't you? I got to have it right now. No, we need to not think that way. So he was secular thinking, if I can just get my needs met now, what do I care about? Yeah, the birthright. So we may think, well, it's kind of nebulous. It's not a big deal. Yes, it is. The birthright is the covenant promises of God for messianic salvation. It's everything, not just nothing, okay? And he was selling that out for a single meal, and that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says. So we're not to be like Esau. Esau becomes a prototype for apostasy. Now let's go on, and I want to make a statement, and then I'm going to read some scripture. Maybe you didn't know about this next scripture I'm going to read. Despising the birthright implied the despising of the covenant that it secured. I'm going to say that again. Despising the birthright, it entailed despising the covenant secured by the birthright. So this would be the covenant promises that were given to Abraham. That in his descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the covenant promises of land and a, and a Messiah. The covenant promises of Genesis 15 that Eric references a lot where God walked the blood trail while Abraham slept. This is the covenant. This is salvation. This is a despising not just stuff, but messianic salvation. Now, to prove this to you, I want you to start thinking here. I know, not that you didn't already, sorry. <laughs> that I'm thinking is kind of a miracle of a few cups of coffee. I was so tired this morning. Let's go to Genesis 27, 41, 42. This, I think, will tell us how serious this is and convince us that the author of Hebrews wasn't just being melodramatic. This is cold, sober truth, and it applies to the church. All right, Genesis 27, 41, and 42. This is after, remember, the hairy hand and the trickery and how Jacob on the scene of history manages to get this blessing. Now we come to the Esau again. Esau says this, now Genesis 27, 41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill, look at that, I will kill my brother Jacob. Now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, think about the implications of that. This would be the first pogrom against the Jews. Throughout history, people have been trying to kill the Jews. Now that the promise was going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob had not yet had children. If he kills Jacob, he destroys the covenant promises. Okay? So Esau was indeed immoral and godless. He wanted to destroy the promise of God. He was thinking, if I can't have it, nobody can. Isn't that behind the, the conflicts in the Middle East to this very day? 
We can't believe that God is going to make promises. And so he was going to kill Jacob. So now this sin of despising the covenant escalated to where it, it could and would have involved murder. Remember Jesus said he who hates his brother is guilty of murder? That's exactly where this was leading. So we're told by the author of Hebrews not to be like Esau. Let me explain something about this bigger topic as means of grace. The warnings against apostasy and sin in the Bible need to be preached because God uses them to help us, right? It says, let that there be no immoral, godless purpose. So it, it warns us. It's applicable to us. It warns us, and the grace of God is at work through the warning to keep us from the same sin. Now, can we make any applications? I remember when we were still down on 24th and Nicollet, and we first got the capability of making DVDs we had one made entitled The Selling of Our Evangelical Birthright. Now, how today is the birthright despised? Well, because we have the blood atonement and we have thousands and thousands of pastors being trained by Rick Warren not to preach on the blood atonement. People don't want to hear it. And so we're despising our evangelical birthright. The one thing that God can use to forgive and cleanse our sins has been taken off the table by church growth experts. Or in the case of emergent, it's gone because there's no hell. And so there's nothing to be really saved from. So we have, may God help us, traded our birthright for a pot of stew. Your best life now is no better than a pot of stew. So that was, I don't know, 2004, 2005, we did that. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? All right, let's go to the next slide. We're going to now shift gears just a little bit, but it's still applicable. How do we know what is or isn't sin? Okay, so if we're going to be warned against being immoral and secular, we need to know what that would look like so we can listen to God. Now, Matthew 16, 18 through 19 is a pivotal passage in the New Testament. Now, let me read it, and then we'll discuss it. Matthew 16, 18 through 19. I also say to you that you are Peter... And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now I realize that grammar seems a little clunky there in English. But it's quite literal in the 1995 update of the New American Standard. Now... When it comes to discussing a couple verses in the Bible, there's more theological ink that's been spilled over these two verses than just about anything you can imagine. You should see everything that's been said about it. A lot. I'll give you some of the ideas, but I'll, uh, I won't leave you hang, hanging. I'll tell you what the exact truth is. Aren't you glad? I think I can. I think I can tell you what it means and prove it from the New Testament. Now, in Matthew 16, notice here it says, I also say to you that you are Peter. Why is he saying this? Petros, rock, Petra. A lot's been made of the play on words. And I think some of the more con better commentaries that I have now rightly point out that an awful lot that's been written about this is simply written to, to prove the Pope's not the new Peter, or that the Peter had successors and the Pope speaks for God. You know, let's all agree that the Pope isn't the new Peter. Right? Okay. 
Now let's go. That was easy. Now let's go and see what was meant here. That's what's really important to us. Okay, now let's go back here. And remember earlier in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, so now we have an interaction with Peter going on here. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you my father in heaven and I also say to you now there's a there's another play on words so Peter said you are the Christ Christ says you are Peter that's is probably enough for us to get the point okay all right Peter you call me the Christ I'm calling you Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven this is the holman christian standard bible whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven reading a lot of the greek resources that i have and commentaries there's a pretty much agreement and i do agree with this that jesus is not giving peter and by implication the other disciples unilateral power to speak for God, but he's promising that they'll have the mind of Christ. In other words, when Peter does speak for God, that he'll be speaking according to the mind of Christ. And it's not the other way around where Peter says whatever he wants to, and now heaven is bound to it, whether it was right or wrong. So that I would want to make straight. We want to identify what the gates of hell are, I remember when I first started studying this passage in the mid-1980s, I did so because it was used by, back then we were in the charismatic movement, or at least trying to transition from it, and it was usually taught as a verse on spiritual warfare. Okay, so you're going to bind demons, or you're going to bind Satan, or you're going to fight the demons of hell. And that's how it was understood. And so I started studying it and realized that's not what this is talking about. Now, you have the mic, right? Let's look up Isaiah 38.10. You want to do that? Isaiah 38.10. Let's identify the gates of Hades. Isaiah 38.10. I said in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. Okay, and there it meant to die. Okay? It's also used the same way in Job 38, 17, where it says, Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? And so, as I taught back in the mid-'80s, and I still believe this is correct, that the gates of Hades are a reference to death, Therefore, death shall not prevail against Christ, who will be raised from the dead. He's the head of the church, and ultimately death shall not prevail against his church. God delivers us from death. Amen? All right, so the gates of Hades aren't Satan and demons. Now, what about you are Peter upon this rock, and so a lot have been written about that, whether it means Peter's confession, whether it means Peter himself, and so forth. But I want to reference Peter. Heidi, could you read from Peter? All right. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 7 is what I need. Let's see what Peter says about rock and foundation and so forth. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 7. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 6 and 7. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Yes. And so we have a foundation, and then we, as Peter understood, stones are being gathered by the Lord and built on that foundation. So as Peter preaches the gospel, and then the other apostles, God is using that to save people, and they become living stones built into the foundation. They too confess Christ, as Peter did, and the foundation is Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now it says in Ephesians 2 and verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. All right, and so we have Christ as the rock, believers as stones built on the foundation of the rock, and Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ as being a key truth that would define the church. But now we've got to talk about the church. This is an unusual term in the Gospels. I will build my church. Okay, so we're seeing that the church here is the assembly of those who have messianic salvation and are committed to Christ and one another. The church is Jesus's church. He builds it. He reveals the truth that's applicable to it. He gave his apostles to do binding and loosing. We're we're zeroing in on what that is. Okay? And so Jesus is building his church. The keys of the kingdom have to do with the terms of entrance. And binding and loosing have to do with what is binding and what isn't under the new covenant. It's Jesus' church, his apostles, Christ and his apostles determine what's binding and what is loosed. But let's start with this terms of entrance, and then we'll talk about binding and loosing. It says, well, maybe I should ask people to look things up. Mike, could you look up Luke 11.52? I see Mike and a bunch of people raise their hand. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) All right, Luke 11.52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Yeah, so they took away the key of knowledge. Not entering entering what? The realm of messianic salvation. They hindered anybody that actually would. In other words, they became enemies of the early church, the enemies of believers and disciples, and the enemies of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. So here we have the issue of the keys of the kingdom in regard to the terms of entrance. Now, if we go back to the previous slide, remember Esau was secular and immoral, and he sold out the covenant blessing for a pot of stew? When I... Back in 2004, 2005, whatever it is, when we made that DVD, the selling of our evangelical birthright, the application was we alone, if we say we believe the Bible, understand the terms of entrance into the kingdom. And that's the one thing we have that other people don't have. So if the church becomes a self-help group, better living through religion, We're not even using the keys. In other words, we're not declaring the terms of entrance into the Messianic kingdom. Those terms are the gospel, faith in Christ. And if that's taken away, then people are being hindered from entering. 
Does that make sense? They never find out. They never hear. Now, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are the terms for entry. Now, some theologians, one in particular I was reading this week, want that to be the only issue here, but I think there's more. I think binding and loosing are issues in their own right. I might call on Adam. He helped me a little with the Greek here this week. Now, let's look at whatever you bind and whatever you loose. This becomes the salient issue. Now, in 1985 or whenever it was when this became front and center in my mind because we were trying to get away from the spiritual warfare teaching, I was looking at the theological dictionary of the New Testament and then reading material about binding and loosing and found out that this was rabbinical terminology that meant forbidding and permitting. Okay, one rabbi would bind what another one would loose. And Mishnah, and after that Talmud, was a collection of unending binding and loosing that never came to a certain conclusion. Rabbi Shammai said this is a sin to walk so far on Shabbat. Rabbi Hillel says, no, you can walk this other distance. And you, so you're bound or you're loosed. And eventually the writings were saying, this rabbi said this, this rabbi said that, this rabbi said the other thing. Next topic. This rabbi said this, this rabbi said this, this guy said that. Next topic. And after I realized that's how it went, it took on new meaning to me when it says that Jesus spoke with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. What's the difference? Whether it's a servant on the mount or wherever, Jesus is the new Moses and he gives law. And he said, it's like this and it's bound because I said it is. That's it. We don't just live in perpetual confusion. And so here he's saying that in the new covenant, Peter and the other apostles, Christ being the chief cornerstone, will bind and loose. And we will thereby have our understanding of what is or isn't sin of what we're bound to and what we're loosed from. And so what I did was I wrote about the CIC, which started in 1992, the first two articles were on binding and loosing. This was one of the first teachings to cause me to come under a death threat. No, I'm not being melodramatic. I really had a death threat with a date and everything attached to it. And I remember the year, it was 89. I got a letter to mail, and it was typed out. And the typed letter said, Thus saith the Lord, thou art about to be removed from the face of the earth. And then it said, and seven months later, dot, dot, dot. So here's an anonymous letter saying I'd be dead in seven months. 1989. Well, you know, it's hard to just, I'd like to say, oh, it didn't affect me at all. It did. It was like a dagger. Okay. Is God saying I'm going to be dead in seven months? And then at that, I'll be dead with his, him angry toward me. So I thought for a while, and I decided I thought I knew who this was. So I called her. And I said, why do you want me dead? And she said, binding and loosing. You want me dead because you disagree with me on binding and loosing. Yep. Well, see, in her way of thinking, Satan didn't like all these people binding him. And my teaching was stopping that. So I was in league with Satan. And I said, okay, well, I don't think I'm going to die in seven months. But either way, I've got to teach what the Bible says. Well, that was 89. I've made it past those seven months. Now, that neither proves or disproves what binding and loosing means. But I think the evidence is in, and especially when we look at it in Matthew 18, and then we'll look at Paul's use of the term bind and how the apostles practice this, and we'll see that 
the apostles are those who speak for God under the new covenant and their teachings are binding. And we cannot ignore the apostles without sin. In other words, if I say, I'm not going to listen to Peter, I'm not going to listen to Paul, I'm sinning. And I would rightly be put under church discipline for sin. Now that brings us to Matthew 18, where this comes up again. Matthew 18, sorry, verse 14. I think let's all turn to that. And then we'll go through and look at some examples of how this was practiced by the New Testament apostles. Okay, Matthew 18, starting with verse 14. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Who are the little ones? Anybody know? Believers. These little ones who believe in my name, it said earlier. Believers. Then it goes on to, to identify that in verse 15. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Verse 17, Matthew 18, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and tax gatherer. In other words, it's safe to assume this person lost and would be the target of evangelism. Now, verse 18, here's our terminology again. Truly, I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So this church discipline is done according to biblical binding and loosing. Do you see what I, how that fits in? We know what the mind of God is. We know what is sin and what isn't sin. And the one who persists in sin without even asking for forgiveness or admitting it's sin is someone who would be put under church discipline and therefore binding and loosing is being practiced. Okay, uh, Brian, you're quizzical. What's, what are you thinking? I'm thinking that when you were telling us that story about that woman who wanted to wanted you dead. Yeah. Okay. What I've been thinking about is that under the umbrella of the evangelical church, unless we're talking straight-out heresy, if you have different views on different uh, uh, theological viewpoints and differences, the church itself is the bride of Christ. That would be like somebody coming to me that says... Uh, something that they don't agree with, and then pounding on my wife, okay? Okay. And I'm thinking that under that umbrella of of uh, God's church, that people need to calm down. Okay. Well, I'd say it's yeah. Like I mean, stress. this yeah. this woman thou shalt die in seven months. Yeah, you you. I mean, you're reading Matthew. Yeah. I mean, thou shalt die in seven months. Here you're reading in Matthew, uh, what you just read, Matthew 18, 18, and 19, that if they're not listening to the church, that you would consider them a target for evangelicalism. I would say that that woman who wished you dead would be a target for being an evangelical. She she did leave the church and had some extreme views. But it didn't make it any less painful to hear that. Now, here's another issue. I'm glad we're talking about binding and loosing. I think this is important. I think it's very important because otherwise we can't define what is or is not sin. And this is for both our warning against sin and protection against false teachers. 
Now, she was saying it was a sin for me to say this wasn't about binding Satan. Now, the same article, then I wrote an article. I didn't write the article in 89, I wrote in 92, but I had published locally in our church the ideas earlier and brought them to our pastor's meeting. Well, I have a friend who went to Fuller Seminary, and his advisor was C. Peter Wagner. Do you know who that is? And he's famous for being in charge of the apostles and prophets. And they bind and loose Satan and demons over cities. And he had been instrumental in some books being published, teaching Christians to bind demons over cities. So because he was the advisor for my friend, who had previously been a pastor in Israel, by the way, I sent him a copy of this, this explanation of what binding and loosing is, and that it wasn't binding demons over cities. He handed it to C. Peter Wagner and said, let me know what you think of this. And so he read it, handed it back to my friend and said, I don't like it. Walked away. Uh, Isn't that rather inadequate? I don't like it. Part of binding and loosing is that every one of us is willing to submit to the authority of Scripture. And it doesn't mean there won't be any disputes, and it doesn't mean there won't be things we disagree on. But if some really solid exegetical evidence is given that helps us understand the meaning of the author, we can't rightly say, I don't care, I don't like it. That's not acceptable. That's like pleading the fifth on the Bible. Okay, I can say I don't understand something. I can't say I don't like it. Bring the mic back to Pig. So uh, I went ahead and published, and then we did some more on this topic. Thanks. Um, (laughs) I never know quite how to form my questions. Um, When you said, otherwise we won't know what is sin, I immediately go to think about, you know, sin has already been defined for us in the old testament through the ten commandments and um i know we've kind of talked about this before oh sorry yeah um why are we all of a sudden left with no definition of sin we do have it's defined by christ and his apostles right but okay i just wanted to make sure because you're implying all of a sudden we have like a blank slate oh no 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 it's as part it's the new covenant But I do deny that we're under the Mosaic Covenant, and there's a lot of scripture to say we aren't. And when we say we are, all kinds of evil and mischief is done in the name of Moses. I mentioned to Eric the other day, it's not that we're justified by Christ so we can be sanctified by Moses. Right, but Christ also, or God, is immutable and is not changing, and his law that he gave in the Ten Commandments now, isn't that just a reflection of the character and nature of God? And that never changes. That's why we have all of those commandments reiterated in the New Covenant, plus more. Right. There are over a thousand imperatives. I, Adam, have you counted them all? No, I haven't either. But I hear there's over a thousand imperatives. Let, let me give an illustration. I was just reading that this week. Some would say Moses applies partially, and we divide up Moses to see what applies. But that was not the view, at at least of Calvin, because Calvin applied all of Moses. And one of the ways that was applied was in the burning at the stake of Servetus. You can look that up on the Internet. But here was a guy who had two sins. One was denying the Trinity, which I say, yes, that's a terrible sin. And he denied the validity of infant baptism. So in Geneva, because Moses reigned supreme, uh, it was believed that the city council was under the authority of the church. That anybody in the city who was on the outs for some reason with the church was therefore to be punished by the civil authority. So they burned Servetus at the stake in the name of Moses, ultimately. Now, fast forward to 
America. We've had some shameful episodes also. Here's what I'm saying. When we get this wrong, we bring shame and reproach to the name of Christ. And some of these shameful episodes are bringing disrepute to the gospel every time they come up. You read American history book, Salem Witch Trials. You read the Reformation, Servetus was burned at the stake. And it all comes from confusing Christ and Moses. All right, we got two guys back here. We, we had an elders, the elders asked me to talk with them Monday night, so we went over some of this. I was going to kind of, I was thinking back to our conversation on Monday night, and uh, I was asking you about the same thing Peg had just asked about, and the thing that stuck with me out of that conversation was when we talked about the fact that we can't bifurcate the the, the Old Testament law. Uh, we can't say Christ uh, uh, fulfilled the ceremonial and the sacrificial law and the moral law or the Ten Commandments are still in effect. He, 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 uh, he uh, satisfied all the law, but he didn't abolish it. Yes, um, yes. And he, it's all been restated again in the New Testament. So I just kind of want to confirm the fact. Yeah. About well, I agree. We miss nothing by being submitted to Christ and his apostles. Now, this idea that you have the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, is really artificial because let's just go back and say we're under the Mosaic Covenant. And by the way, Paul said what in Galatians? Something about those who want to be justified by law. We have the issue in Acts 15. We have the issue in Hebrews 8 that says that the law was obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. We have the issue in Romans 7 and verse 6. Uh, we have the issue in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. But let's just say we're, we're going to say the moral law of the Old Testament applies. Now, does that mean that the other aspects of the law weren't moral? Think with me, please. Think about it. Let's say you're under the Old Covenant, and you went out of the river and you caught a catfish. Did you know the catfish are unclean? All right. Now... You're under the Old Covenant. You're under Moses. The food laws are binding. Would we all agree the food laws were binding under the Old Covenant? Okay. So let's just say you caught a catfish and you thought, nuts to Moses, nuts to God. I'm going to fillet the catfish and eat it. And I'm going to have a side of buzzard fillet. (laughs) Now the question would be, would that be a sin? Would it be a sin under the Old Covenant to break covenant? Yes. Yes. And so is sin a moral issue? Yes. Yes. So breaking the food laws was a moral issue. It was sin, and it would require somebody to go to the, bring the sacrifice, confess his sin, go to the Day of Atonement, and so on. But it's still sin. And then you reaffirm that the food laws are binding, and that if I break them, I sin. But Jesus, according to Mark 7, declared all foods clean. Well, who is Jesus to tell us Moses doesn't apply? He's God incarnate, and he's the lawgiver. And there's much material in the New Testament saying Jesus is the new, better Moses. And that what he teaches applies. Now, Eric, you are next. Yeah, I was just going to mention, uh, that was a great example you just gave. Uh, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he's not under the law, but he's under the law of Christ. Yeah. And so he qualifies who is the lawgiver. And so now you have, like you had mentioned earlier, Christ is the lawgiver like Moses. Then you have the apostles who speak on his behalf. And I was just going to give another concrete example. You'll hear many teachers say that you're bound to give at least 10%. And under the old covenant, you were bound to give a tithe of all that you had. A tithe meant a tenth. And so you had to give a tenth of everything. Well, in the New Covenant, you're no longer bound to that. Instead, we'll look at this today in the sermon. First Timothy 6, Paul says, instruct them to be generous and ready to give. And so the difference between those under the Mosaic Covenant is they were given a legal definition of what they must give, but now people are filled by the Spirit because God has graciously worked in their lives because we're free men and women, 
God allows us to determine what we give, and we're to give generously. What right. amount? We're not bound to an amount. By his grace. It's By his grace. work. Exactly. Right. And so that would be a, a concrete example of where the law of Christ supersedes the Mosaic covenant. It's not just 10%. Now we're called to be generous. How generous? Well, that's between you and God. Um, and, uh, and I think it's yeah, a wonderful that, thing. That's, yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing is we can't ignore the book of Hebrews as if it weren't in the Bible. Now, what does Hebrews tell us about Moses and Christ? Did we not read, and I don't know if I had a slide for this, but I think we read it. Remember the Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. And it says, if we disregard him who spoke from earth, this is at Sinai, that we die without mercy in the hands of two or three witnesses, how much sorer punishment do you think he deserves who refuses him who's speaking from heaven? So who spoke from earth and who is speaking from heaven? Moses, Christ. And so therefore we are under more severe penalty under the new covenant. Greater promises, greater blessings. We still have moral law, but if we disregard the terms of the covenant, we'll be as bad or worse than Esau. Yes? When Moses came down from the mount... Sinai. He came not with the 612 or however many laws there were that the Jews were put under. He came in, came down with the Ten Commandments, I believe. And at some point, it said that these commandments, I thought, would be written on our heart. He would take the from the flesh of the stone tablets. That That's the new covenant. Write them on our hearts. The new covenant is where they're written on our heart. Yes. Go to Adam, please. You're totally right. There's a contrast between stones and heart. And then there's a reference to Jeremiah 31. Okay, Adam. Now, Eric was exactly right by going to 1 Corinthians 9 uh, and showing the contrast that Paul became all things to all people. Uh, to those who were under the law, he became as one who is under the law, but not under under the, the law, but under the law of Christ. And he, he is careful to make that distinction. Uh, you see the same thing in Second Corinthians chapters 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it in Galatians 3 and 4, uh, that the law is a unity. Uh, whoever does not keep every word of this commandment is under a curse. Uh, James says the, the same thing. Uh, and then in Deuteronomy 4 verse 12, I heard Chris Roseborough mention this. Just listen to this. Uh, and the, the relation between the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me uh, at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Uh, A scholar at the the Master's Seminary, William Barrick, has argued that the the structure of Deuteronomy is structured around the Ten Commandments, and within each one, he brings in all the others, all the the so-called civil and moral and ceremonial. And just last couple points, if you think about the Ten Commandments... um, is anyone here really keeping the Sabbath on Saturday at the end of the week? And do you know the penalty uh, for a man who picked up sticks uh, on the Sabbath? He, he was put to death. Do you know the penalty for not honoring your father and mother? Uh, you were to be put to death. Uh, and that's in the uh, Exodus 20 through, uh, through 23. And so no one actually keeps the Ten Commandments uh, as they're articulated as stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. So just to summarize, I'd say first we have to deal with, are we under the stipulations of the Moral Covenant? I'd say from the New Testament, absolutely not. Then, then you can start to ask about, how are these principles applied in the New Covenant? And things like murder. Murder was wrong before the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, murder was wrong during, and murder is wrong after. And those principles still apply, and Christ articulates them and uh, applies them uh, to our hearts. Amen. Uh, and to our, the attitudes of our hearts. Yeah. 
It, if we could look at 2 Corinthians here, chapter 3, starting with verse 7. There are many of these contrasts in the New Testament, and I think we need to take them all so seriously. The point is, by the way, Christ is greater. Do we have a problem with the idea Christ is greater than Moses? Well, I should hope not. Christ is indeed greater in every way than Moses. Now, 2 Corinthians 3, 7. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in the letters on stones, came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face, the fading glory, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison, gives the glory that surpasses it. For if what was fading away was glorious, what endures will be more glorious. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, but we with one unveiled face, so on and so forth. I am suggesting, may God help us, that we take these things seriously. Now, the Ten Commandments have a certain romantic value, and I preached through them one time when we were on 27th and Rhode Island. And when I got to the commandment on Sabbath, I preached that it's fulfilled in Christ. And, and as it says in Mark 7, the food laws are, are abrogated by Christ. Now, the question would be, does Christ have the authority to do that? Yeah. I think he does. He's the head of the new covenant. And then when in, in Acts 15, they had to formally decide on the matter they agreed with christ now also let me say this the mosaic covenant is not the only covenant in the old testament the term law is used in a broader or lesser sense depending on the context you have the abrahamic covenant you have the noatic covenant you have the davidic covenant and you can't just say, well, there's just one covenant of works and that's everything. No, the Moses had one specific covenant called the Old Covenant. And then when Paul, in the book of Galatians, addressed these issues, he went back to Abraham. And so we would say the Abrahamic covenant is still intact. And it was Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And there were promises made to Abraham and his descendants that still apply. But the mischief that's done when we decide to apply Moses in some literal way is horrific. I do not teach infant baptism. If I lived in Calvin's Geneva, I would be burned at the stake. And they killed a lot of people for not believing in infant baptism. Kill them, drown them, burn them. Why? Because, well, they're opposing God's church. The Catholic church, you know, there was, this went on for a long time. I think that even in our history here in America, wouldn't we be better off writing books, warning people about witchcraft than killing people? Just think about this. God is not willing that any parish... When we kill somebody, there's no longer any chance that they're going to repent. Do we want to kill people in the name of God because we want to establish it? There are post-millennials. By the way, when I was in seminary, I was asked by one of my theology professors to write an article on post-millennialism or Christian Reconstructionism. And I did. And Dr. Ringstraw liked it so much, he was hoping I could get it published in a theological journal. There are people today who very much want to reinstitute the Mosaic Covenant. They want to reinstitute slavery. They want to reinstitute the execution of rebellious teenagers. And they're going to take the whole law of Moses, apply it to... I know, that was funny. I mean, all right, now don't get so excited about that. <laughs> I remember we were talking about that in class, and I said, well, at least that idea has some merit. <laughs> But uh, you wouldn't have a lot of rebellious teenagers. But slavery, 
reinstituted. And there are people arguing for that today. Now, my contention is that we're not under the Mosaic Covenant, so we don't need to be going through all these gymnastics. Let's just realize we're not under Moses, we're under Christ. Back to Eric. Oh, yeah. The key, when, uh, when people first came to America, they had this post-millennial theology, and they believed that they were Moses coming to establish the kingdom in America, and the Native Americans were the Canaanites that needed to be con- conquered and vanquished. And again, some more shame was brought to the gospel. Dear ones, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited or harsh, but I'm telling you that we need to get it right or we'll harm the gospel to Floyd over here. We don't want to bring shame to the gospel. That's my ultimate motive. Good morning. Good so, morning. in a sentence, how do we know what is and isn't sin? By binding and loosing. We got the teachings of Christ and his apostles, and they bind what they bind, we can't do without it being sin. Have they bound coarse jesting? There's a passage about that. So yeah. is coarse jesting making fun of killing teenagers? Is that coarse jesting? Uh, I don't know. So you're saying that we shouldn't be discussing that issue? We can discuss it. I don't know if we need to make fun of it. Okay. What well, do you think? What do you uh, think, Bob? Do I think it's a sin to... Make light of killing teenagers. That they did so under the old covenant and... Some want to do it now. And to make light of it. I'm taking it seriously. I don't know. Does anybody want to respond? Or? I thought well, well, it was That is. doesn't mean it's not sin. I'm just so trying to find so out what, sin, po- so what is your... sin and what isn't sin. Well, it's defined by Christ and his apostles. Okay, that's telling me who defines it. it doesn't tell Christ me what and it his is. apostles in the writings in the New Testament. It doesn't tell me what it is, though. Well, only if you're assuming we can't possibly understand the Bible. Okay. So you're just telling me, go read the Bible, and then you'll find out what sin is. Well, that's one of the ways. And and as John MacArthur says, the meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. So when we bring out the meaning, the meaning is binding and applicable to Christians. Okay. And it becomes a basis for church discipline. Because it's funny means it's not sin. Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that. Okay, well, is it sin? Let's just get back to the main question. Is it sin to make fun of killing teenagers? Well, if it is, then I repent of it. If. Well. Maybe this should be discussed. Yeah. We're out of of time here. Maybe. Yeah, we're out of time. Okay, this will be discussed later. See, see, that's a valid question to raise. And I do say that teaching Christian Reconstructionism is sin. I say that. It's not biblical. And I published a paper to that end. All right? And I'm warning the flock that if you literally apply the law of Moses and don't understand you're under the covenant of Christ, you'll bring shame and reproach to the gospel. Is that right? That's right. But okay. All right. Point well taken. No, uh, I'll back I to uh, Ruth. Oh, I didn't see you there. Okay. I don't no, know if I can speak. if I can well articulate this, but to reconcile what you're saying and what he was saying, uh, it's just just to say that Jesus, since Jesus. Uh, the other covenants are on our hearts now. So sin is what you know in your heart is right or wrong. And As accordance with the teachings of Christ and his apostles. And if you're feeling that uh, it's wrong, making fun of uh, killing teenagers, when you have that feeling, then it is wrong. I wasn't. And I was you, making fun of the Reconstructionists. I don't think you were making fun of killing teenagers. But yeah, I, I, I was making fun of the Reconstructionists, but 
You I don't think what? anyone point was well making taken. fun of anything. No, point well taken, I won't mention that again. No, but really. it's not about you. It's about, you know, he's wondering what, what sin. How can you know what sin is? And you know in your heart. Because Christ, uh, how can I put this? He brought, yeah, he, we're under grace. Not, we're under uh, the Spirit now, not under Moses. So anyway, yeah. it's hard okay. for me to articulate. Well, let's, well let me reiterate what we've hopefully learned. Uh, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under the New Covenant in Christ. Christ and his apostles define what sin is. Our implications and applications may be correct or not correct. Those can be judged. All right? The meaning of Scripture is Scripture. Our implications and applications can be judged. And my light speaking about uh, Christian Reconstructionism and their position has been judged to be sin. I'll submit to that, and I won't say that ever again. Please forgive me. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Help us to understand these things and to live accordingly by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.